0: So yesterday was the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And what I wanted to do today was to explore some of the connections between our practice, our Dharma practice, aiming at freedom and liberation, and the life and work of Dr. King. I wanted to do so by exploring three common themes that we can find in our practice, whatever we call it, our our Buddhist practice, our Dharma practice. Three themes that are very connected between our own practice and the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and those three themes will be wisdom and understanding, first. And then secondly, love and netta, the heart, the kind heart, secondly. And then thirdly, the theme of integrity. And what I'll be doing is exploring those three themes and then inviting us to focus on those themes in the next week. And my original intention was to complete this uh, exploration today and to cover a lot of different themes. Like right in here I have have notes I made uh, last night and this morning completing that were, you know, uh, named like, Ten or fifteen different themes I was going to explore, and then, as I actually worked it up i said i think I think three is good <laughs> and uh, so what that means is that i have I have a lot of material <laughs> a lot of material left, which I think is is very interesting, and I, I also find that uh, looking at the connection between uh, our basic sense of practice that we get from the Asian Buddhist tradition especially, and looking at the sense of what we can call spiritual practice with the life and work of Dr. King, we have a kind of a dialogue which I think is very creative and very central to uh, our own sense of practice at this time and place. So there's, there's a lot there. And there's a lot that actually can be very creative when we have that dialogue. So that's my aim today, and I aim to continue that next week and, uh, again, give us a sense of practice so we can have, if we wish, this next week quite continuous with the exploration of this theme in terms of our daily lives, how we are practicing, and just with those three themes. And if those three themes are too much, choose one. Anyway, so I'll explore that. So for, for many people, uh, Dr. King may be the most significant moral and spiritual figure in the history of this country. A lot of people think that. I've, I've seen that said by many people. In fact, uh, the well-known... Writer and leader, uh, Rabbi Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, some of you may know, who uh, marched with King in Selma in 1965 and was a refugee from Nazi Germany. He said that the future of America depends on, we might say, our response to the legacy of Martin Luther King the very future of this country depends on how we uh, respond to his legacy. So we can can ask, how are we doing? It's a mixed picture to say the least, right? But it's an interesting lens to hold up. So a little bit about his biography. Some of you... Some of you uh, know of his life, Uh, born in 1929 in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. His father, uh, a minister. His mother uh, played the organ in the church and was a choir leader. He was a very good student He went to college at the age of 15, went to Morehouse College, and he graduated at age 18. At age 18, he decided to become a minister, and he went to uh, Morehouse Seminary in Pennsylvania, and then later went to Boston University as well, where he received a, a doctoral degree, At that point, he was uh, 26 years old. He took his first ministerial appointment, as many of you know, in Montgomery, Alabama. Little did he know that he would be almost uh, invited to help uh, change history, and he was up to the task, as it were. So he was a minister there And if you actually read some of the history, or hear some of the accounts, he was a new face in Montgomery, and they were in the middle of what we would call civil rights struggles, or movements there. And they invited him, partly as a fresh face, maybe partly because they sensed his capacities, they invited him to become the leader of the movement. And then shortly thereafter, you know, Rosa Parks refused to get off the bus, Uh, 1955 the rest is history they had a bus boycott it lasted uh, for a very long time and was ultimately successful and he really went on to be uh, a national leader as well became president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference 1957 which was one of the groups earlier groups that played a very significant role and was very central for a number of different campaigns in different places in uh, Albany, Georgia, in Birmingham, Alabama, the March on Washington, 1963, uh, movements that later went into the North, into Chicago and other areas. Again, many of you know this history. Um, In his uh, last year of life, He extended his concerns to more, uh, shall we say, other systemic issues, other interconnected systemic issues of poverty. And he came out uh, quite strongly in opposition to the Vietnam War. And I'll talk about that later. That was 1967. Gave a famous speech on uh, April 4th, 1967, at the Riverside Church in uh, New York City. We'll hear an excerpt of that a little bit later, and uh, uh, it was on April 4th, 1967. uh, A year to the day later, he was assassinated, helping the sanitation workers in in, um, Memphis, Tennessee. So again, I I want to explore the three themes uh, relating both to our Dharma practice and to Dr. King's work. Wisdom, understanding, first. Practices, cultivating the kind heart, coming out of love, metta, second. And then thirdly, integrity. Sort of wholeness of our being. And so forth. So uh, these give, give some very... Um, these are like some of the central pillars of our practice. So it's a nice, I think it's a nice um, choice if I do say so myself. (laughs) Okay, so first, wisdom. And this relates to the understanding of dukkha or suffering or reactivity. I would say that the center of the teachings of the Buddha and the center of the teachings of uh, Dr. King are close to identical. Using different language. And the teachings are pretty simple. Much of our practice is simple in concept Hard to do. Which is good. It'd be better if it was better than if it was complicated in concept and still hard to do. <laughs> right. so, so what's the essence? Um, I think it comes down to that phrase I gave before. Uh, in Buddhist practice, it's dukkha and the end of dukkha. That's it. That's what we're up to. So what is, how do we understand dukkha and what does the end of dukkha mean? And I'll show, I think, how this is really the same understanding that we get in the nonviolence of uh, Gandhi and King. So I I think in the fall we actually looked some at the nature of dukkha. So a short summary that in the in the teachings of the Buddha, there probably are five or six different meanings given to the phrase dukkha, and partly because it was an oral tradition, they're not all consistent. The Buddha didn't; uh, it wasn't written down, so there wasn't any big systematization of all the teachings, and there were inconsistencies, and every you know things weren't. Uh, all lined up perfectly. That being said, there was a tremendous amount of internal coherence to the teachings but on some of the points it wasn't all easily lined up and that led to, could lead to both a certain amount of confusion and later efforts to make it really consistent. Most of which, in my view, did not work very well. <laughs> Another story. And so, um, one of these areas is dukkha. And so you find a lot of different understandings of dukkha. Like, like I say, I think five or six. So sometimes you find dukkha, and this is the meaning in ordinary language in the language of the Buddha, it simply means that which is unpleasant, difficult, not quite right. You know, the, the etymology of the term, some of you know, is linked to an off-center axle on a cart, All right? So you, maybe, maybe you've heard that. And there's some way it's not quite right. Somewhat, uh, also, dukkha would often be the word that would be used simply to mean the unpleasant, the difficult. And so the Buddha sometimes says, you know, illness is dukkha, old age is dukkha, and so forth. And that's one meaning. And there, there are a few other meanings as well. Sometimes it's said to be that there can be dukkha when things change. that when we have something good happen and it changes, that's a kind of dukkha, the Buddha said. And there also can be a kind of dukkha just in the fact that um, conditions are never quite perfect. Have you noticed? (laughs) All the ducks are not lined up. (laughs) right. Eve Decker, who I mentioned earlier, has a song that she wrote where she says something like, uh, um, I don't have it together and you don't have it together either. (laughs) So um, that's one of the senses of dukkha. You know, horror. uh, Some of you know, anyone knows Susan's moon book, The Life and Lessons, I think, of Tofu Roshi? Have you heard of Tofu Roshi? The famous Zen teacher. Fictional. <laughs> and uh, one of Tofu, Tofu Roshi's uh, Dharma talks was called How to Give Up Self-Improvement. <laughs> that could be based on an understanding of Dukkha, right? Like it's, it's, okay, I'm getting... Some self-improvement is okay. okay so, just, just to be clear. Okay. So, um, but I think the, the, the central meaning of dukkha is one that I've sometimes given here on Wednesday mornings. And I think it's the, the most central meaning of dukkha for our practice is not dukkha as unpleasant or dukkha as change or even the nature of conditions I think the teaching of dukkha that's most central to our practice, could un, we can understand dukkha as reactivity, the resistance to the present moment, not being okay with the present moment, either grabbing hold of it to get more of it or pushing it away. And this comes out in the teaching um, that really is maybe my favorite teaching of the Buddha, the teaching of the two arrows, which I, which I give a lot. right, And that teaching is like this. The Buddha was talking to a group of practitioners and he said everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. How does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner if everyone has unpleasant experiences? And we could say that we have sometimes unpleasant physical experiences, sometimes unpleasant Emotional experiences, difficult emotions, grief, sadness, fear, anxiety, and so forth. We have difficult thoughts. We have negative tape loops that go on in our minds, all of us. We have difficult interpersonal interactions. We have difficult situations in which we're not treated fairly or justly. All of this can occur. And this would come under what Buddhists called the first arrow we're all sometimes shot by the first arrow this is universal everyone experiences that no difference between a a practitioner and a non-practitioner by the way I I like to say that a non-practitioner means also means those who sometimes call themselves practitioners when they're not practicing (laughs) which has been known to occur Okay. And so, um, so everyone is sometimes shot by a first arrow. That is not the problem. So ultimately he's saying the presence of the unpleasant isn't the issue. And when we talk about dukkha and the end of dukkha, we're not trying to get rid of the unpleasant. Right? So when you hear someone say the aim is the end of dukkha, it, it obviously doesn't mean getting rid of everything that's unpleasant in our lives. The Buddha himself you know, had some body issues when he was older. Near the last part of his life, he had headaches and he had a bad back. Right? Very normal. Presumably, he had reached the end of dukkha, and so these were not an issue. Right, That's the first arrow. What the Buddha said is the problem, is that because of the first arrow we tend to shoot a second arrow. In other words, we react. That we have unpleasant physical sensations and we react. We can react physically. We tense around the unpleasant physical sensations. So I've heard that 80% of the pain of many people with chronic pain is the tensing around the pain. It's not the pain. It's only 20% is the actual pain we can see that very easily with interpersonal relationships, right? But with pain, even so, even that's the case. And so the first main application of mindfulness in the medical field, not surprisingly, was with chronic pain. Interesting, right? Because if you can eliminate the second arrow, the 80%, all of a sudden you have much less pain, right? And then, so shooting the second arrow would be tensing, Emotionally, it would be having something difficult happen, react, blame oneself, blame another. You know, we can have a unpleasant emotional experience that lasts for uh, 10 seconds, and we can be preoccupied it, by it for how long? <laughs> you know, certainly hours and days sometimes, right? Or, or longer, right? We can have difficult things happen that influence us, we react to it for 30 years or 50 years. Again, uh, sometimes that's the best we can do. It's not to blame us, but we can react with emotionally, mentally, again, with our narratives, with our thoughts, difficult emotions, very clear interpersonally. Someone says something kind of uh, mean to me and I react back with something mean to that person a lot of difficulties in relationships are two people shooting second arrows at each other, right? As if that would help get rid of the original unpleasant situation, as if that would help. And that's because why would we do it otherwise? And a lot of it's somewhat almost like hardwired, but that's the second arrow. And again, we can see how uh, when we actually look carefully we can also see that that is exactly the principle of nonviolence. We have received pain. We have received oppression. We will not simply react and give you pain and oppression in return or give the oppressor that. We will actually uh, not react but respond. And so the teaching of the second arrow or of the two arrows is particularly to help us not shoot the second arrow. And sort of a clear way to talk about dukkha is to say that dukkha is shooting the second arrow. That's what we want to end. It's the reactivity. And in this case, particularly the reactivity that pushes away the unpleasant. In actuality, there are two main forms of reactivity. Another grabs hold of the pleasant. We react, I want that, I want more of that, and neither of them can really be in the present moment. Right? For the purposes of looking at the life of Dr. King, it's the reacting against the unpleasant, the difficult, the injustice, the oppression. How do we do that? And so this is where King said that... For a long time, he didn't think that it was possible to bring the what he called the love ethic of Jesus to social and political affairs. But he said, it was only when I read Gandhi that I understood that it was possible. And so, the, really, the notion of nonviolence from Gandhi and King, again, to me, it's the same core teaching as that of The Two Arrows. We have received the unpleasant. We will not habitually react. Right? This is a very, so again, very clear teaching. Very hard to put into practice, right? But it's a clear direction because it lets us look for our own patterns of shooting the second arrow. Notice our, re, our reactivity. So, you know, every practitioner... Suddenly, you know, maybe we all came here for bliss, understanding, and light, but we become students of the many forms of our own reactivity. Again, I, I sometimes joke, it's not so clearly there in the promotional literature for Spirit Rock. <laughs> Come, get to know really well the ten ways you shoot the second arrow that are most prominent. Become a connoisseur of your forms of reactivity. Get to know them better than you ever imagined was possible. We'll try that maybe one season for the Spirit Rock literature and see what the attendance is like. (laughs) I looked once and it's not quite there. It's a little bit... Anyway, I'm going on about it because, you know... Anyway, more could be said, but I'll move on. So, in Dr. King's language, uh, the principle—the same principle of the two arrows—could be expressed like this. He would say, "He would say the means must be as pure as the end. It's an uh, abandonment of the doctrine: the end justifies the means." He said, the end represents the means and process, and the ideal in the making. And so there was a clear intention to practice non injury and to watch the tendencies of the reactive mind again, to lash out in violence, to even to blame and judge, to demonize to demonize one's opponents. And so when you look at his work, you find a tremendous amount of empathy and heart. I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I'm kind of going into the heart area. You find a lot of empathy for people who were, quote, his opponents, right? And really very much like, like Gandhi said, at the end of our movement, I want the British out and I want them to be our friends, right and king talked about it as the aim of reconciliation and creating what he called the beloved community so one doesn't do that by reacting and using violence force negativity and so forth so and this so it's really a perspective of Sort of the unity of humanity and could extend it to uh, non humans as well. And so that teaching, the teaching of the two arrows, the teaching of nonviolence, at the center, we could say is developing non reactivity and understanding of our deep, shared core of our being, hence the sense of interdependence. And that would, that's one way of talking about the wisdom dimension. And another lens which really is quite parallel is to look through the lens of love and metta. And right at the center of our practice is that cultivation of the kind heart. Sometimes traditionally it's said that the dharma is like a bird with two wings One wing is wisdom, one wing is compassion. And and compassion really is shorthand for the open, kind heart. And we can find that sense that everything needs to come from the kind heart. In King's world, this would be called love. In the Buddhist world, it would be called metta, compassion, different expressions of the kind heart. So I've just come from co-teaching the meta-retreat for a week. I actually haven't gone home yet. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I still have a little bit of a, maybe more than a little bit of the meta-energy. I can feel it. (laughs) It's been... It's been all around we at the end of the retreat, we uh, this was originally Sylvia's idea. We, we everyone at the retreat, which was 97 people, plus the teachers and managers, we all sign a postcard by saying our name and writing it on this big postcard it was like maybe it was, it was imaginary, but it was like 50 100 feet big, and then we sent it off into space to all beings with everyone's signature. Right. And uh, so I thought I'd read just to get a sense of you know, this amazing um, intention that human life can be centered around love and warmth and kindness, right? And that we can live like that, even with the way the world is, right? What, what an intention. Here's the text, the uh, beginning of it. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. With a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. What, 2,600 years ago. All right? So we have this sense of this expression of our practice as continually bringing that kind heart, sometimes expressed as loving kindness. One of my co-teachers, Anushka Fernandapula, her phrase for metta is unstoppable friendliness. (laughs) And actually the root, the etymological root of metta is actually related to words meaning friend. right. Unstoppable friendliness or kindness, benevolence, goodwill. These are some of the other translations that have been there. And it's understood that our deep nature, in some of the texts, it's understood that our deep nature has this quality of warmth and kindness. Even those who have done very unskillful things have that same Uh, quality of heart and mind in their being. It just is covered over. So in that sense, there's not a sense of evil beings. And there's no basis ultimately for demonizing or having any beings, any human beings certainly, out of one's heart. That would only be there because there's reactivity. Gandhi said that nonviolence is the law of our being. He said the belief in nonviolence is based on the assumption that human nature in its essence is one and therefore unfailingly responses, responds to the advances of love. Within human nature, there is an amazing potential for goodness. From Dr. King, I say to you, I have also decided to stick to love, for I know that love is ultimately the only answer to the problems of humanity. Hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And he understood his social action as guided by love. I would say guided by love, guided by that wisdom of the two arrows teaching, the equivalent we're guided by wisdom, we're guided by the kind heart. That's our practice. And he said, you even love your enemies. And again, here he's following the teachings of Jesus. He, and he said, I'm glad that Jesus said, love your enemies rather than like them. Because there are some people, this is King, there are some people that I find it pretty difficult to like. Liking is an affection and emotion, and I can't like anybody who would bomb my home. I can't like anybody who would exploit me. I can't like anybody who would trample over me with injustice. I can't like them. I can't like anybody who threatens to kill me day in and day out. But Jesus reminds us that love is greater than liking. Love is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill towards all human beings. So he makes that distinction. In metta practice, this is like developing metta for the difficult person. <laughs> we do it near the end. <laughs> it's advanced practice. <laughs> right? And so, but King is saying that I can have that aspiration to love. And there's, it's almost like a different part of our mind than the liking or disliking. It's interesting, right? Interesting how he, he goes there. And he has that sense that with love... We use love and understanding to defeat the unjust system. That's the basis for our action. Again, uh, a lot of people would say un- impractical, right? But that's what they did. That's, it, it worked for Gandhi, a lot of successes for Dr. King. And so the attempt, it relates to the earlier points, the attempt is to defeat the unjust system not the individuals. The individuals are not the problem. It's the system that's the problem. You know, the system, the cultural ideas and so forth. But again, this in Christian language this would be to say you criticize the action, not the person. You know, and I, I, I told this story two days ago, but I think I'll tell it again. You know my mom, I think, brought us up uh, in my family, with this, and I heard the story that one day my brother had done something she didn't like. And she said, I really love you, but what you did, dot, 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 and she went off and talked about how she, you know, that wasn't so good, but I love you. And he responded, Don't talk to me like a psychologist, just spank me like the other parents do. <laughs> Right, so, but that is, that's the approach with coming out of love because, of course, the question is how do you come out of wisdom and love and still deal with difficult situations, right? How do you deal with injustice? And, you know, King, Gandhi, they give us a sense of how to do that. And again, we can, you know, part of our practice, how do we come with wisdom and love to the difficult situations in our lives? To our difficult interactions, how do we prevent ourselves from just being reactive, shooting the second arrow? That's our practice, right? Not easy. Right? We get lost continually. We mess up continually. So maybe in one of the other talks, I'll bring in forgiveness more, because compassion and forgiveness become really, really core heart qualities in this practical path, because we're going to keep on messing up, right? So to speak. The third theme, this is the last theme I want to explore and then we'll have a chance to talk together, is that of integrity. And integrity can mean different things. I think it means wholeness, especially. It means that our practice and our deeper values are there for everything in our lives increasingly. Not just part of it. It's not like we're meditators and we're really good on the cushion. But half an hour later, uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh, right? And so there's something in our practice which really calls us to have that, whatever we call it, the moral, spiritual consistency. You know, integrity is a good word. It means that sense of coherence, wholeness, maybe authenticity, a seamlessness about our lives. It's not about perfection because wholeness can include imperfection, really crucial point but how do, we, how do we bring our practice to all the parts of our lives, including the difficult ones? That is, we could say, integrity and wholeness. In the traditional teachings, there were three aspects of training. Uh, sila, samadhi, and panya. Ethical training, training in meditation. That samadhi is code for that. So ethical training, which has to do with our relationships, being in community, meditative training, and then wisdom, which in a way covers everything. And so there's a certain uh, way that traditionally Buddhist practice covered all the parts of life. One of the issues, we might say, in the way that uh, Buddhist practice has come to the West is that we really have focused primarily on on, meditation. Meditation which is understandable historically because the meditative dimensions were somewhat taken out of the Western religions. So we can understand and the inner dimension has been somewhat lost in Western culture for like, you know, a thousand years. (laughs) Broadly speaking. (laughs) But, uh, so it's understandable but it has its its issues. It has its problems. And so the traditional model, I think we can see that wholeness and one of our Uh, root problems may be that we think, you know, sometimes people say, how's your practice doing? And they mean your practice on the cushion. But shouldn't our practice be everything? Right? That's that sense of integrity. It was a crucial issue for King. And he, you know, he did have his own shadow territory, his own imperfections, I would say particularly around gender and sexuality. Some of you know the history you know? um, but he was very interested in integrity. And one of the places where it really came out, I'm just going to focus on one aspect, was his decision to uh, speak out on Vietnam in 1967. You know? He hesitated for a number of years. I think it was said, he said that he was always against it, but he thought that if he spoke out, it would interfere with the collaboration with President Johnson and with getting civil rights bills through, which makes a certain amount of strategic sense. But it must have been painful because he, was, he wanted his nonviolence to be consistent. Right? And so he went through a period of uh, anguish around that and eventually came to speak. I'm going to play uh, the first five or six minutes of the speech where he actually came out and spoke and described some of his own kind of journey of anguish to come to integrity. You know, Why don't I do that right now? So, this is Dr. King April 4th, 1967 speaking at the Riverside Church in uh, New York City.
1: Come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join you in this meeting because I'm in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization which has brought us together, clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. The recent statements of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart, And I found myself in full accord when I read its opening lines. A time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt. But the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one even when pressed by the demands of inner truth men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy especially in time of war nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. Moreover, when the issues at hand (coughs) seem as perplexing as they often do, (coughs) in the case of this dreadful conflict, we are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty. But we must move on. And some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony. But we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision. But we must speak. And we must rejoice as well for surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of its religious leaders have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of a firm dissent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us If it is, let us trace its movements and pray that our own inner being may be sensitive to its guidance, for we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around us. Over the past two years, as I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences and to speak from the burnings of my own heart. As I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. At the heart of their concerns, this query has often loomed large and loud. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask. And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I am nevertheless greatly saddened for such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me, my commitment or my calling. Indeed, their question suggests that they do not know the world in which they live. In the light of such tragic misunderstanding, I deem it of signal importance to try to state clearly, and I trust concisely, why I believe that the path from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, the church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I began my pastorate, leads clearly to this sanctuary tonight. I come to this platform tonight to make a passionate plea to my beloved nation.
0: So the whole talk is about uh, one hour. (laughs) But you got a sense of that uh, um, anguish and loneliness. And in fact, the uh, day after the speech... There were extremely negative editorials, I think, in both the New York Times and the Washington Post. He lost an, uh, a lot of support. It's not so well known at this time, now, but uh, in the last year of his life, he was not well regarded. By many. His, there was a Harris poll in the beginning of 1968, and his popularity rating, uh, I think it was, a, uh, his public disapproval rating was 75%. You know, newspapers, magazines all came out with criticism. We can sense that as his own, you can hear that, his own attempt to have integrity. So what I want to suggest for next week is that we, you know, we uh, practice with possibly all three of these themes. Uh, wisdom and non-reactivity, cultivating the kind heart, and integrity. We can do that in different ways. You know. In terms of the first, we can, we'll go into a lot more detail on Sunday if you want to really do it, okay. But uh, well, you know, one way to do it would be to really um, track for your own reactivity, set the intention every morning. It's a beautiful daily life practice, really interesting, right? If reactivity comes up, I'm gonna study it, I'm gonna notice it, I'm gonna try as much as I can not to shoot the second arrow. We can know that if something difficult happens, there will be tendencies to shoot the second arrow. If something difficult happens, or you think of something difficult, know that that's likely to bring up the second arrow, so so then you can track for it, right? It's probably the most common guidance that I give to people with whom I work uh, one-on-one. Some, they're talking about something difficult, and I say, Watch out for the shooting of the second arrow. I say that more than anything else I say in working with people. So that's, some, that's a way to look at it, you know. That to, and it can be small things, big things, you know. Um, find ways not to act out. Easier said than done. If you do act out, go back and study it. Okay. Maybe next time we'll. You can you can do forgiveness practice as well, right? Um, Advanced practice is uh, driving, much for non-reactivity. Forgiveness forgiveness practice is a major practice I do when driving. Just cut me off. Forgiveness anyway. Forgiveness practice. So that's kind of a segue to the uh, uh, second point. Find a way to cultivate the kind heart. If you know metta practice, do it every day for ten minutes a day. Find ways of cultivating kind heart. Could be metta practice, loving kindness practice, compassion practice. Working with intention goes a long way. You have a difficult meeting, difficult interaction with someone, difficult conversation. Bring the intention to have uh, loving kindness. Maybe also empathy. Empathy is a sort of an expression of the kind heart can be. Look for where there are challenges to the kind heart being there. Again, not an easy practice. With what situations does the kind heart uh, vanish? What's difficult for you? So that would be a second one. Um, so study what's challenging, bring in the heart practices, work with intention. And then the third would be uh, just to look at one's life and look at where am I integrity? Where might I have more integrity? Is there an area of my life I want to bring more integrity to? Again, not from the perspective of judging ourselves or blaming, but more inquiry. Again, we have to hold it with some compassion and understanding of our own what foibles, imperfections, right? Compassion. So maybe two quotations from uh, Dr. King to end. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. So we can hear there the the merging of the wisdom and the love, right? The understanding of nonviolence, nonreactivity with the connection with love. And then last last part from Dr. King is just one sentence. And this came from, in in the Birmingham movement, 1963, they had the, um, King developed, I think he developed it probably, or one of his assistant's, Uh, Everyone who participated in the movement had to sign a statement which was the Ten Commandments of a Nonviolent Soldier. Very good. Maybe I'll bring the other ones in, but I just focused on one of them to end because it sort of summarizes the integrity part. Okay, here it is. It's short, so listen. Number three walk and talk in the manner of love. The third. Commandment of a nonviolent soldier. Birmingham, 1963 walk and talk in the manner of love. So, again, those three themes the wisdom, love, metta, kind heart, and integrity. So, how many would like to practice those for the next week and come back and compare notes? Or even if you can't be here. Okay, that's okay. Okay, great. Maybe just take a moment to reflect on how you might do that. How would, how would I bring these practices into my daily life in the next week? Uh, thank you. And then again, thank you for your kind listening. And we have some time, maybe about 10 minutes, for any questions, uh, discussion, uh, points. And we want to uh, use the microphone. So why don't we say our names before we, before we speak? Yeah. I think person right behind you wants to speak.
2: Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of the second arrow and integrity, <clears throat> uh, Dr. King uh, spoke about for years he struggled with his conscience, right? Yeah. It seems there was a lot of second arrows probably happening in there. What am I doing? Why am I not doing this? You know, you should be whatever. Um, can you speak to how uh, or some techniques or, or the connection between the urge to integrity and the second arrow and how to be, how to act without the second arrow,
0: without the need for the second arrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. How, to, how to act, how to explore when the second arrow is there, how to act. Um, Using simple language, we could say that it's about non-reactive action. Or another way, we we sometimes use the word response rather than reaction. And the reaction tends to be non-mindful, automatic, semi-conscious or unconscious. And so I think ultimately there's a sense, you find this in multiple traditions, Taoist tradition especially, there's a sense that when we move away from the reactivity, it's like our core nature is pretty good, and, we, and there's a sense almost of uh, almost like of natural action that comes out of compassion. When those qualities are there—compassion, kindness, mindfulness, equanimity—it's related to uh, qualities like patience, like uh, generosity, and connection, and so. Um, generally the the aim of practice is to it's really could be summarized in two ways it's to see the reactive tendencies the conditioned tendencies and to work through them on the one hand and then to bring out these other qualities these uh, beautiful awakened qualities on the other and have our action increasingly come out of them right and so I and mean, that's what you know king might have said something similar when he talks about acting out of love. And so there's a purification process that occurs as we work through our reactivity. It's not like it, you know, we can work through old patterns. It's not like they're, you know, the, the neural pathways never go away, but they become weaker, is one way to say it in a scientific way, right? As we have new neural pathways, we could say that awakened qualities or new neural pathways, they get stronger, doesn't mean we don't relapse, but, they, but the, uh, they're just more there. So does that get added some? Yes, thank you. I, I guess the qu- one thing is
2: we have those... I, I think there's a thing in the mind that thinks if we don't have that prompting of the second arrow, we won't act. If we don't have... If we don't have the prompting of the second arrow, you should do this. Oh, I see. I that see. we don't act.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that brings out another point that um, I would say, and this is again, King would talk about this or or uh, Buddhist activists like Thich Nhat Hanh would say, yeah, the motivation for action may change. That's interesting, right? And so what does activism look like that's motivated by compassion and love as opposed to reactive anger? And I'll be brief here because I want to make room for other people as well, but maybe we can look at it next time. Um, King said that the transformation of anger is at the center of our movement. And it's it's a big theme here. And so anger itself is not necessarily reactive. Anger can put us in touch with deep values. And so skillfully working with anger can be quite central. Um, Please. Thank you.
3: Um, I mostly just wanted to thank you. I, I found this like really moving. And um, sometimes when we're in here and we're talking about nonviolent communication and um, meta and all of these things that can feel ungrounded from the real world, like how do we practice this in a world that can feel so
0: yeah. Yeah.
3: difficult and challenging? And it really just grounded um, it for me. So I, I also wanted to maybe in, invite you from my own personal standpoint, if you wanted to bring in other... Um, masters like this I know I would in talks
0: in talks, yeah. In talks. Yeah, yeah it really
3: just like grounded it in, in the real world yeah um I had one other comment um well maybe that's enough thank
0: you yeah, yeah thank you thank you very much and you know I, I also wanted there you know I, in my notes that I was developing I had like, like I said 10 or 15 points of which I dealt with three right and and so I was, you know, some of it was also a little more dialogue, like where, where can uh, Dharma practice learn from Dr. King? Where can Dr. King learn from Dharma practice, so to speak? Or, you know, where are there limitations of either? And so, yeah, but to bring in other major figures like that, I hear that, thank you.
3: Hi, Hi. Yvonne. Is it on? When something happens that I feel really bad about, that would that would be the first arrow, and then um, it's like three or four arrows later yeah, it's like i um i'm aware of the, the yeah. third or fourth arrow, and i I tell myself uh, saying no more arrows, yeah, but it's like so I catch it the subsequent arrows, but i'm just wondering, is that kind of like uh, cultivating the the ability to um, Perhaps catch the next arrow. Yeah, recognizing that you had yeah. the subsequent ones.
0: No, it's a good. It's a great question. Um, the second arrow is a term that is shorthand for the second through the one million five hundred eighty third. Right. It's. Um, it keeps happening. it is shorthand because the reaction of F from the reaction from the reaction keeps occurring, so whenever we can notice it, it's helpful, you know, because it stops the process. then we have to you know, work to some extent with maybe some hold it with compassion or care or forgiveness, so we don't blame ourselves for having shot the second arrow. but uh, as wherever we notice it, then you know, hopefully the uh, reactive process uh, stops at least for the time being. And, and that's very positive. So, and then we can, again, learn from it. It can be helpful. This is something for our daily life practice. It can be helpful at the end of the day to review where were the two or three times I shot the second arrow most. What was the trigger? Right? What triggered me? Because we want to know, what are my particular triggers? We will each have our own. right? And to know that is, is, is important because then we're going into a situation where we're likely to be triggered you can go in with some, okay, I'm going to bring some tools here, right? And so it really is helpful to study our own patterns and and know, okay, I get triggered. You know, Like personally, when I was studying a lot of this, and it still happens, I notice when I think someone hasn't really heard me or listened to me, it's probably a lot of us can feel that. It, I get triggered, right? Someone's not really listening. I don't feel heard or, or met or whatever. And uh, helpful to know that, right? And, and then that can help, yeah. So please, so Maybe, uh, I Maybe think last one, yeah. Oh, I'll make it good. Okay. No, <laughs> last um, but not least,
3: <laughs> this is very helpful for me because it kind of brought to the forefront something I've been sort of almost unconsciously struggling with, and yeah. that is on Facebook. I have friends who are vehemently one political approach that mm-hmm. offends me but i also have friends who have the political approach that i subscribe to but their vitriol and their anger and the things that they post also upset me and so i keep thinking well maybe i'll just go off facebook but but more than anything what you brought to mind is either side is upsetting because of the level of anger and hatred that is in there
0: that's and, right yeah.
3: you know so i don't I don't want to hear this about the people who I oppose any more than I want to hear about the people that I support. So it just kind of made that clearer for me that I don't think it's it's like having the second arrow just to expose yourself to that when you don't want yeah,
0: yeah. to be experienced. There's a lot there, what you say, that um, so much of what passes for... Um, commentary or uh, discourse is full of the second arrow. Yeah. And having uh, you know, some insight, let's say, into injustice or something that's problematic can go hand in hand with shooting the second arrow. And so I think what, you know, as with King and Gandhi's work, all of this is pointing towards a whole different modality of uh, responding to issues and problems. And a, a vision, you know, they, they had the vision of reconciliation. That would lead one to talk differently with those with whom you uh, uh, differ. Right? You know, and so actually, uh, you know, emphasizing uh, empathy and understanding, really crucial for our times. You know, I remember... There was someone, I think it was a guy named, uh, I forget his name, uh, a writer for the San Francisco Chronicle in the, in I think October 2016, he said, what this country most needs is empathy. Which is understood as the ability to hear with interest another person. Even if there's a difference. Not easy, right? Again, but it's really possible. I remember I... I taught, I sometimes tell the story, I'll I'll end with this. I taught for uh, four years at the University of Kentucky, in Lexington, Kentucky. And I taught a lot of ethics classes. And we dealt with hot button issues. You know, in Kentucky we dealt with coal and we dealt with um, abortion. But people were really, when I gave a framework of really hearing other people and listening to them with interest, they all went along. And we could have go into intense discussions of abortion with people who call themselves fundamentalists. It was done with respect and kindness and listening. And that's possible. In fact, people uh, are nourished by it. You know? And it's, it's, it's what we deeply need. So that would be, you know, some of us may choose to act in that way, just having dialogues based on respect and uh, empathy and interest clearly is part of what would be helpful and healing at this time, you know. So maybe some of us will lead that. So thank you. Yeah, we'll continue with that. So let's sit to close. We'll do traditional dedication of merit first. Again, just come back to what's your intention leaving our session? Maybe bringing it in, bringing this into the next week. What's your intention? We offer the fruits of our session, of our practice, to ourselves, to each other, and then beyond these boundaries of the hall, out into the world for the benefit of all, so our practice is ultimately for the benefit of all, and that includes us.